Welcome to the Predictable Designs Podcast, where it's all about creating and selling successful new electronic hardware products. Here's your host, engineer and entrepreneur, John Till. Welcome to the Predictable Designs Podcast, where we discuss all things related to developing, manufacturing, marketing, and selling successful new electronic hardware products. I'm your host, John Teal. Today I'm speaking with Scott Miller, who is a mechanical engineer and the founder and CEO of Dragon Innovation. Dragon specializes in helping hardware startups transition from, pro- from the prototype stage to mass manufacturing in China. They are well known for helping successful hardware startups such as Pebble and Ring. Scott is also a partner at Bolt, which is an early stage investment company that focuses specifically on hardware startups. Scott and I discuss his experiences working with Pebble, his story about Dragon Innovation being purchased by a multi-billion dollar company, the biggest challenges of transitioning manufacturing to China, his tips for designing a product for manufacturing, and his suggestions when seeking professional investors. This is definitely an episode you do not want to miss. Okay, welcome to the show, Scott. Oh, great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. I've been excited to uh, chat with you for quite a while, so I think this will be really good. Um, can you maybe go ahead and just uh, start off by you know, giving a quick introduction, telling everyone a bit about yourself and about Dragon Innovation and what you guys do? Oh, sure. Yeah. So at Dragon, uh, we're a consulting company that focuses on helping companies of all sizes safely navigate their journey from a prototype through high volume production. And we do this just using a system and processes that we've honed over the last 20 years, building at this point millions of consumer electronic hardware company, uh, hardware products and uh, NIOT uh, devices. We've got a team at Dragon of about 25 people spread between Boston, Seattle, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Shanghai, Taiwan and Amsterdam. And uh, just with having such a diverse set of skills and locations, we can really help companies navigate that one to many um, on their manufacturing uh, journey using a global network we built up of about a thousand factories and partners. Uh, for us, are all of these factories in, in China? Or is, is, I'm assuming that's where the majority of them are. Yeah, the majority are in China. Um, we have, over the last couple of years, really been branching out to include the U.S., uh, Europe, and also the Asia-Pacific region outside of China, specifically Indonesia and Malaysia as well. So we're, we're, always, um, we're always agnostic on where we build, but we definitely got our start in China. Yes, of course. Okay. Um, I'm curious about the, we can call it the origin story of Dragon Innovation. Is it correct that uh, I believe you founded it in 2009? Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we've been at it about 11 years. Okay, wow. Wow. Um, Yeah, I've known about you guys for probably at least four or five years. So you've you've been around for for quite a while. Um, What was your your original motivation for starting Dragon? Dragon Innovation. I know that you worked at like project management, I believe, at uh, iRobot with the the Roomba. So you obviously have a lot of experience in that area. But w- what motivated you to to start Dragon Innovation? Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, as you noted, I had uh, just a really great ten years at iRobot from the early days all the way through the IPO, um, building building the first four million Roombas. 
and had a chance to live in China for four of those years to set up all of the different manufacturing lines, during which I learned a lot of what we know firsthand, uh, sort of the hard way. And what I found is we'd gone public. Uh, I had come back as the VP of engineering to run a team of 70 people. But I found that being part of a larger company then, it just wasn't as dynamic as the old days. And I was also so far removed from the actual engineering part and more just doing the management side of things that I was eager to get my hands dirty again. And basically two things happened that, um, that were enough to sort of give me the, the impetus to start Dragon. One is that I found that a bunch of startups like Zio kept coming to us saying, hey, Scott, we've got this prototype. Can you help us think about how we can scale it? And that's really what I love to do. So I started to see there's a little bit of a demand. And then the second thing is I went to a Jimmy Buffett concert. And my background is, uh, in addition to engineering, I'm a pretty hardcore sailor and have sailed from Boston to Tahiti, Boston to Portugal, and so on. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I think inherently being a sailor, I, I, of course, have to have a love of Jimmy Buffett. And the question I had going to the concert was, you know, Jimmy's sung the same songs probably 10,000 times. Um, and I wondered if he liked going to work in the morning or in his case, going to work in the evening. And, uh, my question was answered when he came on stage barefoot in a bathing suit and just had the time of his life. So when I saw that, I'm like, oh, I got to do what I love. And even though I've got a good stable job, um, in 09, the economy was crashing. Um, we had one kid out, one on the way, but I'm like, oh no, I got to do my own thing. And that was kind of the, the Jimmy was sort of the little push I needed to, um, to, to jump off and, and start dragging. Wow. Yeah. You, you, de- you definitely have that entrepreneur mindset. It sounds like, like we, we, we all do of wanting to do something bigger and not just work for work for one company. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think with many things entrepreneurial, looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, that was kind of a big risk. Um, but at the time it didn't, it didn't seem like a big deal at all. It just seemed natural. So sometimes not knowing everything is it can be a good thing. Yeah, I don't ever advocate taking huge unnecessary risks, but if if you've always take the the safe path the safe path in life, it, it kind of makes things kind of boring in my opinion. So I think yes. a, a little risk and you know with risk comes the potential for big rewards obviously. Yeah, and it was a really I mean it continues to be just a really really fun journey. So no um only good things. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that you had lived for four years in, in China. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Do you think that's, obviously there's a lot that you learned by being on the ground there. And I suspect that's probably instrumental in, you know, giving you the knowledge to provide the services that you do. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what we do at Dragon is based on all myself and others kind of firsthand experience going through it ourselves for the first time. So we can really relate to what it feels like for our customers, you know, just trying to find trusted partners or realizing there's a lot of unknown unknowns. And uh, as you said, it was definitely the four years I spent in China, really knowing nothing when I started was instrumental in um, climbing the learning curve. We of course made a thousand mistakes and almost bankrupted the company many times. Yeah. But um, what, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Absolutely. So we, we managed to get ourselves out of the holes we had dug and, um, and learned a lot in the process. And, and also saw the opportunity to take those learnings and then share them with other companies just so they could be more efficient in their journey. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was I was quite excited. I don't recall when it was. That I'm not real good with time. I feel like it was maybe a year or two ago when I had heard the announcement that Dra- uh, Dragon was being bought out by Avnet. So first of all, congratulations on that. I was I was quite excited for you when I had heard that. I'm curious of. Was that exciting for you? How has that transition been? Obviously, Avnet is a multi-billion-dollar global company, so that was that was quite a big transition for for you and for Dragon. I'm, I'm curious how how that process went and how how it's going to uh, today. Yeah, it was it was fantastic, and I'm really excited to be part of the Avnet team. They're just a great group of people that give us um, within the people and the capabilities of Avnet a lot more reach and um, different offerings that we can add to our existing manufacturing knowledge to be able to create better outcomes for our customers. So um, all across the board, it's been awesome. Uh, Kind of our our journey, we started as a consulting shop and then ended up raising some money from Amazon and a really great group of VCs in 2013 with the goal of adding a software layer to Dragon kind of automate some of the stuff that we ended up doing time and time again for greater efficiency. And we're just at the point where we're going to raise a follow-on round. Uh, we're ba- I'm based in Boston, but I was out in Seattle, maybe um, just interacting with Amazon. That was for us a really good investor and reached out to Adam from Hackster, who's a buddy, to, you know, just to see if he was free for dinner. And over dinner, he mentioned that Hackster was joining the Abnet team and why he was so excited and encouraged me to give uh, Dana Badhorn, who um, is a, a VP at Avnet and, and one of our strongest champions, a call. And so I called her up, we hit it off, and we we're kind of faced with the decision, do we raise this follow-on round from a phenomenal VC or do we join the Avnet team? And I was just really excited about the synergies with Avnet. So um, we went that direction. The other thing that swayed me is back in the early days of iRobot, again, when I knew nothing, we ended up partnering with Avnet to basically program the bootloader on our IC, which was a way to keep our IP safe. And I was just really impressed with how they took me under their wing and and kept us safe and and provided um, just great services. So I didn't know at the time that I'd um, have the honor of being part of their team, but it's kind of funny how things uh, loop around. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. I didn't realize that you. I, I knew that they had also uh, bought out Hackster, but I wasn't quite sure of the timing if they were both. I, I feel like I knew that Dragon and Hackster were around the same time, but I, I didn't realize that Hackster was first and that you had spoken with Adam at Hackster and that he had encouraged you to to reach out to Avnet. So that's uh, that, that's exciting. It doesn't. I get the impression from both Hackster and Dragon that that Abnet's letting you operate as a small, sort of as still as a small independent company. I don't really, I've not noticed any huge changes in what you guys do or your website or anything. It still looks like Dragon Innovation and still looks like Hackster. Is that pretty much true? Yeah. So that's one of the real strengths of the relationship is that they've let us continue to sort of do what we do. The I guess the big change for us is that we still work with a lot of phenomenal startups and we love that, but we're also finding a whole new class of customer coming to us. 
And unfortunately, most of the names are under NDA now, but they're typically the Fortune 100 or Fortune 50 companies that historically have not built a hardware product, but do want to get into the hardware space. And as we look at it, they're just like startups. They don't have a lot of experience. They often have a prototype and they need help. So it, you know, it really plays to our, our strength and what's in our wheelhouse. The only difference is they're insanely um, well-funded and ability, have the ability to move tremendous volumes so that they can scale up very quickly and they're not constrained in terms of buying inventory by having to raise another round or things like that. And where being part of the Avnet team has really helped is that if a company came to Dragon when we were standalone and wanted to do $100 million of business, we would have been thrilled, but we just had no way to handle that sort of money. Um, We don't have the infrastructure, lawyers, processes in place. Whereas with Avnet being a $19 billion company, they've got all that infrastructure and the ability to handle it. So it's kind of the best of both worlds that we can help interact and um, engage with these huge companies that need help that Dragon can provide. And then Avnet can, you know, make sure the whole process runs smoothly. Um, So I think that's probably one of the big additions. But Avnet has really given us a tremendous amount of freedom, which we're really thankful for, but also backed us up with their their team. And um, they have insanely deep double E knowledge, which is an area that we weren't as strong in before. Um, so it's been a really great partnership. Interesting. That's interesting that you're, even though they're large companies, they, they sort of have the same knowledge of product development as a, as a startup. So that the, a lot of the same advice and the, the same services that you offer to startups can also apply to a large company that hasn't done product development or hardware product development before. And I find that with my own business to some extent, obviously I focus sort of on the more the, the, the prototype stage and helping people get to a prototype. Um, but I also, and I specialize, you know, with hardware startups and entrepreneurs, but I also work with small companies because I find that a small company, even though they've been around for a while and they have a little more money, if they're developing their first product, they're essentially like a startup or an entrepreneur. So I don't, I don't ever work with large companies, Fortune 100, like you're talking about. But it, it does seem, regardless of the company size, that if you're new to hardware development, you're kind of like a startup, at least in some regards. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they all want to move quickly, um, which is not usually what big companies do. So it's often, um, you know, special um, entrepreneur teams um, that are, have a little bit different DNA Um, which is great. It's much more startup-like. The kind of the cool thing too is now that there's such a focus on IoT, which is awesome, but it's also insanely complex, you know, with the device level firmware to the protocols to get it to the cloud, to security and and everything else along the way. Mm -hmm. Avnet's invested a huge amount of time and effort and money into building out IoT solutions which are, it's never really plug and play, of course, but it's, um, it's a very robust, powerful solution. And being able to offer that stuff to big companies and small companies has been very cool, whereas before we wouldn't have had that capability within the, within the walls of Dragon. Okay, interesting. Yeah, d- I definitely get the impression that Avnet has made some moves in regards to startups and, and such. Would you, obviously buying Dragon, 
which you mainly work with startups and then especially Hackster, which is you know, not really startups or entrepreneurs, but more makers and such. It seems like that, that they've realized that that's a, a market that they want to get into, which I assume is part of the reason they purchased uh, you and Hackster as well. Yeah, certainly connecting with with startups. They've done a few other acquisitions recently. I think we were the 101st or 102nd acquisition and pretty much before Hackster and Dragon, most of them were distributors that they rolled up. But recently they've bought um, a company called SoftWeb, which does um, IoT, you know, roughly from the transmission to the cloud to the analytics. And then more recently with Techio, which does the firmware on the IoT device. So it's cool to see a company of Abnet size that's been around for 99 years really go through this transformation of you know, still being strong in distribution, but looking at areas where they can build on that foundation and, and offer additional value. So it's kind of cool to have a front row seat and, and see how this all, um, all grows and, and um, evolves from there. Yeah, there's nothing like having a $19 billion company sort of in your back pocket there to provide resources and, and help. So that's, that's exciting for you, I'm sure. It is. Yeah, they're just a, a great group of uh, people, really strong leadership. So I'm, I'm learning a lot and, and you know, really thankful to have the opportunity. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that you've worked with over the 11 years, probably hundreds of, of products. And I, I realize that a lot of these are covered by NDAs and you maybe can't talk about them. But I know that I've read, you know, I've known this for years, that one of the products that Dragon was, I believe it was in your very early days that was instrumental in working with was Pebble and their smartwatch product. Is, is that correct? Oh, it is. Yeah, we had a, a blast. So we had been working with Eric probably six months before they ran, ran their famous Kickstarter campaign. Uh-huh. Funny, I remember sitting in a meeting um, right after they launched, I think it was two hours into the campaign and they'd sold something like 200,000 units like or maybe $200,000, it must have been. Um, and I got an email from Eric saying, uh, Scott, I think we need you. Really, <laughs> like none of us knew how it would unfold going forward and, you know, what the um, sort of the levels of their success and how they would grow. But, um, but I still have that a- email. It meant a lot to me. Oh, that's um, interesting. I didn't realize that you were working with them before. I kind of figured they had the big uh, Kickstarter success and then reached out to you, but it, you, they were already working with you. So that sounds like they had a, a little bit of a head start on uh, getting manufacturing set up than just, uh, you know, not uh, so many people will run a crowdfunding campaign and worry about manufacturing after the fact and not before. Right. That is certainly our experience. I think that the Pebble guys did just a really good job of being thoughtful ahead of time. And, you know, once they, launched the campaign, which took off, you know, more than anybody ever thought, trying to think, I think it might've been like 12 or $13 million raised. There's obviously a tremendous amount of pressure on them and they hadn't, they're great engineers, but they'd never manufactured anything in volume. And the product itself was really challenging. So it's a wearable, which obviously we always think of is like the Olympics of hardware because you've got biocompatible materials, flexible in their case, it was waterproof to five atmospheres. Um, packaging is tough. It's got to look good. Um, so they're basically doing the hardest thing they can with all eyes on them on a really tight timeline. And they just did a great job of handling the pressure, making intelligent decisions, and building a really awesome product. I mean, the first battery lasted 
or the first watch, I think the battery lasted for a month, uh, sorry, for a week, whereas Apple, you know, would maybe last 26 hours. So they did some, you know, incredibly good work and we're really proud of, of what they built. How long did it take after their, their Kickstarter campaign before they were able to deliver? Do you, do you happen to remember the, the timeline? I, I know that's been quite a few years ago. Good question. I think their campaign, if I remember, was in June. And I think we started shipping around January. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah, my memory may be a little off because it was a few years ago. Yeah, that's well, that's better than I expected. I didn't think you would remember down to the months. So that's pretty good. Yeah, it was a crazy ride. Um, and then they went on to do the, um, you know, multiple different generations after that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that was that was a blast. Were you, were you working with them? Because obviously you mainly work with startups and there became a point where they weren't really a startup anymore. So I kind of assume that they got to a certain size where they sort of took over manufacturing and you weren't in, involved. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we probably were involved in the first million or so watches. So we did okay. the initial Kickstarter and then the steel. Um, and I, I might have that number wrong just because yeah. it was a while ago. Well, that's a pretty good place to, to leave someone is after they've sold a million units. So, uh, yeah. I mean, we always, transparency is really important to us as well as teaching. So we were psyched that they were, we were able to help them build up the expertise and then they um, ultimately were able to take the ball and run with it. Um, but yeah, it was a, just a great team and really cool product. Um, are there any other products that, they're currently on the market or that you're that you can share any uh examples of oh sure yeah i think at this point we've probably worked with about 300 companies working from the prototype through high volume production and just thinking of a few um that we can talk about um we were really involved in ring working with jamie from the early uh sort of um door um i think it was called doorbot uh, days when he had a also a, a crowdfunding platform called um, Christie Street. So we were able to um, just get in with him early and, and help. Oh, wow. Him. I didn't realize that you'd worked with Ring. Yeah, that's a. Uh, yeah, I've got one of the early. home run there. <laughs> yes, um, we're, we're proud of them and just a, another great team. I've got one of the earliest Ring doorbells um, sitting by my front door and it's still working beautifully. So that's cool. Uh, we worked really closely with Dropcam. Um, sort of the same story of just getting in early. Um, Sphero, MakerBot. Um, we wow. had the chance to work with Formlabs um, super early on. We um, you know, didn't do, we worked a little bit more with them later on in a strategic standpoint. But I remember meeting Max after he just graduated from MIT. I think there's only three or four people at the time. And he was so clever. He was using, if I remember correctly, speaker drivers to get the, um, the um, D to A circuit uh, because they were so cheap to drive their Galvos. And the thing is that the card, the speaker driver cards for a PC were super low cost. So they didn't have very good frequency fidelity. And you would see the effect of that sort of represented in the part they printed that um, it wasn't exactly accurate just due to the, the frequency response of the card. But it was uh, cool just to see how clever they were. And again, now they they built it into a unicorn. So that's that's kind of fun. Yeah, those are wow. Those are some uh, great examples. I, I think most uh, listeners are going to be familiar with uh, at least several of those, if not all of those that you've mentioned. 
Um, what, what you, you've mentioned that you go, you help startups go from prototype to manufacturing, but what level do they typically need to be at or what's sort of the sweet spot for, for you to help them? Is it, uh, do they have to have prior, obviously they probably don't have any sales because you're helping set up manufacturing unless maybe they did some low, really low volume sales tests of, of some sort. But even as far as the, the prototype, do they typically have a, a prototype that's pretty close to being ready for mass manufacturing and then you just help with the design for manufacturing aspects of it? Or do some of them just have a proof of concept prototype? And obviously that's a, a whole other uh, level that they have to go from that to a, a manufacturable prototype. So just sort of what's the, the level of startups that you typically work with? Yeah, so we're all trained in product development, but at Dragon, we don't do any of that. So we're typically not zero, or we're never zero to one, but one to many. And in terms of the on-ramps for Dragon, typically our customers, or our earliest customers, will have a working prototype, bill of materials, and then both electrical and mechanical CAD files. But they don't really need to have thought through design for manufacture and assembly. Um, it's really helpful for us also if they know what sort of volume they want to produce. If they were building a thousand units, we might approach it in a certain way. And if they're building a million units, then we think about it a little bit differently. Uh, but generally, you know, something they can plunk on the table that's not running on an Arduino or a BeagleBone or a Pi, um, but generally a little bit more production ready um, uh, chip. And then we can help them figure out how to go through the DFM, DFA pick a factory, create quality plans, and, and scale the thing up. Are, are most of them funded or are bootstrapped? Many are funded. Um, generally, uh, either a large company where uh, funding may not be their top priority, but just creating a quality product on schedule, or venture-backed startups. We, do, um, we try to help everybody just because we know how hard this is. So for companies that are bootstrapping or maybe have a, a the napkin sketch, we try to connect them with great partners that can help them um, be able to develop that um, idea into a proof of concept or a prototype. And then we've also created a pretty cool online design for manufacture and design for assembly course, which is based on some of the work I did when I was an adjunct professor over at Olin College of Engineering. Um, so it's a, it's a good online course that will go over the basics of how do you pick a factory, um, injection molding 101, and, and things of that nature. Yeah, since setting up manufacturing tends to be, you know, especially for the injection molds, it tends to be uh, rather costly. I, I kind of assume that, and typically I always recommend that most startups are going to need some outside funding once they get to the point of, mass manufacturing. So I, I kind of assume that the majority of the, the customers you work with have either are larger companies or have some type of outside funding. And it's not just a solo entrepreneur because at, at that point, you, you're typically going to need some outside funding. Is that what you've found? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just outside of um, ignoring like um, just Dragon's business model, but just being able to buy the tools and the inventory and then get through the assorted um, UL or different compliance testing usually does require a fair amount of capital. Uh, of course, it depends on every project, but typically two to five million isn't a bad starting point to build 
5,000 units. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, I'm curious, what are some of the, the biggest mistakes, the biggest challenges that you see for startups when going to set up manufacturing, specifically, most likely setting up manufacturing in China, but just also manufacturing in general? Are there any big mistakes, big challenges that you see just over and over that you think people need to be aware of? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that can go terribly wrong, um, which is why it makes hardware so exciting. Yeah. But I'd say, you know, if I had to pick the biggest mistake, it's selecting the wrong factory and just trying to pick, like, pick a factory quickly or talking to a guy that knows a guy and then working with that factory. And often, you know, the factory may be very capable. It's just not a good impedance match. So even though everybody may have the best of intentions, it's just something that's not, not going to work. So we always recommend um, of all the things you got to get right, um, picking the factory is, is top on the list and going through a very thorough and um, methodical process, uh, which we just called the RFQ or request for quote process. And typically it involves um, having a long list of maybe 10 factories down selecting the three to five, and then um, creating a detailed RFQ document. The most important thing you can do is go and visit the factory uh, because you'll learn so much in doing that. Um, and those are all things, of course, we can help with the dragon as well. But, um, but I think the biggest thing is, you know, just not, not being thoughtful in, in um, what factory you want to work with. Um, are there any specific guidelines that you would suggest in regards to picking the right factory? Like, for instance, the size of the factory or their their capabilities obviously are all important. But I, I think the size, you, you kind of want to be a, you, you don't want them to be so big that you're just an ant to them and they don't give you any priority. But obviously, you don't want to pick too small of a factory. Is there kind of a sweet spot to, to aim for? Yes, you hit the nail on the head. And we would use the analogy of the fish in the pond that you don't want to be a small fish in a big pond or a big fish in a, in too small of a pond. Uh huh. Um, so that's probably the most important thing. Typically factories are categorized by tier one, tier two, and tier three. And in different industries like automotive, it means different things than in consumer electronics. But the way we might define tier one would be over a billion dollars of revenue. So that would be your Fox flex Jable. Um, San Mina, Wistron, and so on. Um, tier two is typically 250 million to a billion. And then tier three is under 250 million. And usually if you're trying to build 5,000 units to get started, which isn't a bad first run, you want to look at a tier, a tier three. Mm-hmm. And it's not a value judgment. It's just simply a, a size judgment. The you know, bigger factories typically have a lot more working capital and can give you potentially better terms and more capital equipment and engineering. But the thing is, you're just not going to make any difference for their bottom line. So if an Apple comes in, you know, all the resources are going to go over there. Whereas if you pick a great tier three, which, you know, admittedly is hard, hard to do, or, you know, takes some um, expertise, you can find a partner that will grow with you and um, give you a much better chance of, of succeeding. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. The the getting the right size is is critical. Yeah, it also seems, from my experience, finding a factory that 
isn't at full capacity, uh, at least in my my case, I found that to be beneficial because they were, if, if a factory is at full capacity, then they're not quite, they, they don't need new customers quite as bad as one that's not operating at, at capacity. Is that at all come into play when picking a factory, do you think? Yes. Yeah. We look at um, sort of factory hunger. So, um, you know, factories are just made up of people. And in some cases, you're going to really resonate with them. It's a great team. They're excited. They have capacity and, and they also see the vision for your product and see that it can grow. Because early on in the development process, a factory is really investing a lot of time and effort in, in a company without immediate payback. Because the way the factories make their money isn't necessarily on NRE or non-reoccurring engineering, but on just building products where they take a markup for every product. And it's so critical that they see the potential of, of a product um, and they have the capacity to grow. So finding that, it, you know, we'd often make the analogy of like picking a factory is a lot like getting married, that if you um, select a great spouse, then you can do anything. But if it's not a, not a good fit, then it's somewhat of a disaster. So I use that same analogy for co-founders, but it applies in a lot of instances. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's exactly the same you know, the same thing. And yeah, towards your um, point, like they need to have capacity, but they also need to be hungry and excited and passionate about it and feel that they can influence it. Um, So all those things are important. And and that's why we really encourage our companies to go and visit the factories firsthand and and build up those relationships. Have you found, because when, with my product at finding a manufacturer, I found it was really beneficial that I had a a big retailer. uh, It was Blockbuster Video who I had met with and expressed interest in my product. And that's what allowed me to get a manufacturer that was willing to invest in it. Have you found having some sales data or marketing data or crowdfunding success has been, it it tends to be critical for uh, getting a manufacturer that wants to actually partner with the startup since it is a lot of upfront work and cost before they're going to start actually making any profit. Absolutely. Yeah. As part of our RFQ process, we'll spend um, a good portion of the um, document trying to describe the background of the the team and the founders, any other successes they've had or educational background. Um, If they're venture backed, we'll talk about the VCs involved and some of the other companies they've supported. Certainly retail partners are important so that there's a channel to actually sell the product. Um, but all of these things are equally important to, you know, what is the, actually the thing that you're building just to give the factories confidence that you've got a, a great team in place and access to capital and access to channel um, so that if they can build it, you, you have the ability to sell it. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, I've kind of, and I, I have a question coming up about uh, investors, but I, from whether it's investors or manufacturers, obviously the, the product matters and the, the business plan matters, but I've found that the founders tend to matter the most because as you well know, the value is not in the, ex, and the value is not in the idea, the value is in the execution and the execution comes down to the founders. So is, would you pretty much agree with that? It sounds like in the the information you provide to the manufacturers, there's background about the founders because you're also having to sell them on the founders and not just the idea. Yes. Yeah. And what we like to do is have the founders go and develop a rapport with the factory owner. Uh, just again, everything is a people business. 
So um, chances are, particularly for startups, that they're going to be one of the smaller customers to start. And if things go well, they'll you know grow and expand. But by developing that rapport, when the company needs a little extra help, you know maybe there's somebody else in line for the molding press or the SMT line. Um, if the founder can call up the factory owner and say, "Hey, um, can you help us out here?" That can help a huge amount, so that it's not some nameless, faceless customer. Um, but yeah, that that really helps, and it also is important that the founders are charismatic and you know can have good emotional intelligence as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, as a founder, you have to wear a lot of hats and you have to interact with a lot of people. So you you kind of have to to show that you can do that aspect as well. Yes. Yep. That's incredibly important. What are one thing that I will commonly recommend for startups when first starting is to do their maybe very initial manufacturing. And, and typically I'm talking hundreds of units, maybe a thousand or two to do that mostly domestically, or I'll even call this a hybrid manufacturing strategy. So by that, I mean, have the printed circuit board made in China, the enclosure made in China, but then do all the assembly, the quality testing, the packaging domestically so that the founder has more control over the the process until you, you get all the bugs worked out. Because I found that setting up manufacturing in China when you've not done any manufacturing for the product is there's a lot of details that have you have to work through and just the time difference can complicate that. So I've always liked doing it domestically, then transitioning to China once you prove the product and you're getting some manufacturing volume that's thousands or ideally 10,000 plus units. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Do you typically recommend that they go straight to China or do some smaller, uh, more local manufacturing before doing a full migration. So we're always a huge proponent of building locally if possible. Um, you know, one of the big challenges in manufacturing is communication. And if your factory is just a short drive away and speaks the same language, that's so much easier to deal with than having to get on a plane, um, pay a thousand bucks, fly halfway around the world, be exhausted and speak in a different language. Um, so if possible, we would always prefer to build locally, um, at dragon, we're agnostic on, on where we, we build, we just want to pick the, or help our customers pick the right solution. What we find is the kind of the key thing to look at is what sort of volume do you expect to be building in the next, say two or three years, and then start with a factory that can handle that. The sometimes in what we find is if you pick a local factory, but know that you're going to exceed their volume capability um, relatively soon, that may not be the best choice because it can be expensive to transfer the tools. Um, The tools may be built um, differently. So often in the US, we use something called mud frames or master unit die, which is different than the type of injection molding they use in China, which would be based on a, a mold base. So you can't you spend all this time tooling it and you can't even move it over. Um, we also worry that if you move when you're just ramping up, it's incredibly challenging both to scale up but also to to work with a new factory and transfer the domain knowledge. So for us, the North Star is you know two years from now, three years from now, what volume do you think you're going to build, and then um, pick a factory over there. I like your hybrid approach a lot. 
in that, you know, potentially you could build some inroads with vendors in a different company, different country if needed, and then make the transition easier if you did want to go that route though. Yeah, you kind of mentioned a point that I, I find that a, a lot of entrepreneurs have a hard time estimating, and that's future volume. You know, what, how, many, how many units are they going to be selling in two years from now? And from my experience, most entrepreneurs, we tend to be an optimistic bunch. And I think most people think that they're going to be selling millions of units uh, during, uh, you know, really quickly, much faster than typically what happens. So I, I just want to mention that, that don't, if you're listening, don't, uh, you, you have to be really careful when estimating future sales volumes, because I, I most likely what you're thinking is, is going to be overestimating or not quite realistic. Have you found that as, as well with startups estimating sales, future sales volumes? Yeah, much of the time. And I think nine times out of 10, they're over-optimistic. And then one time out of 10, they, um, it's much stronger growth than they anticipated. And they both create problems just yeah. in different ways. But yeah, I, you know, I think it is one of the hardest things for a new to the world product to be able to anticipate what the volume is um, until you actually get it out there. Yeah, because you have, you have no data. So it's, it's, it's really kind of, uh, kind of guesswork to some extent. If, if you've sold other products, then you probably have more realistic expectations. But it's an area that I, I found that as you know, everything in business or everything in hardware, everything's always harder than what you think it will be. And it always takes longer and it costs more. So, Yes. Yep. That's the truth. Um, so with the, uh, the coronavirus is obviously such a big news now and is having such a, a big impact in China. I, I'm curious, and that's where you do a lot of your manufacturing, but you talk about that you do manufacturing in other places. What what other alternatives are there for doing electronics manufacturing other than China? I, I know Taiwan is, is one good possibility. Are, are there any others that, that you guys have, are doing manufacturing in? Yeah. So in addition to um, China, the U.S., and then we spent a lot of time building out in Europe, um, one of the areas we're focusing on very aggressively now is the Asia-Pacific or APAC region, excluding China, uh, and towards that end, we sent last year one of our senior dragons to spend 100 days exploring multiple countries to really get some firsthand knowledge as to what their state of readiness and capability um, is. And he was in Taiwan, Japan, Vietnam, Malaysia, um, Indonesia, Singapore, and um, and so on. And wow, just sounds like an exciting trip. <laughs> oh, I'm jealous. I would have loved to have done. Yeah, that that's that's work. That just sounds like traveling the world. <laughs> I know traveling the world and visiting factories. Like yeah, that's kind of a dream <laughs> yeah. uh, dream job. <laughs> but we were so encouraged by what we saw that um, we actually uh, deployed him over there again permanently. He's now based in Taiwan, which has a lot of capability and. Um, He's an American citizen, but um, but grew up in Taiwan, so he's got some good connections there. And we're seeing a lot of good stuff out of um, out of Indonesia, uh, particularly Batam. So it's just a short ferry ride from Singapore, in some ways similar to the Shenzhen, not being too far from Hong Kong. Uh-huh. Was there? I want to say in two thousand and five, and it, at that point, it wasn't really ready for prime time. 
but it, it's come a long way. And um, we've got some customers building down there, which is exciting just to be able to offer more, uh, more options. There's an interesting article, you know, I probably saw it 10 years ago, but it really rings true from The Economist, looking at different Southeast Asian countries um, as a function of manufacturing capability over time. And I may have the order wrong, but I believe it started in South Korea, then went to Taiwan, maybe South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, China, Vietnam, um, and then just worked further and further west to Bangladesh and India, and maybe now ultimately Africa. But initially, the quality is terrible, and it's all like cut and sell, so so clothing, you know, jeans and what have you. And then they build up the supply chain, logistics, domain expertise, processes, and so on, and um, move up the value scale. So if we think of, you know, just China in our lifetime, when we were a lot younger, the quality was crap. Um, you know, you just would never consider getting a good quality product out of China. Yeah. But the stuff they're building today is amazing. It's just, um, you know, some of the best quality I've seen in a long time. So my expectation is that if that trend holds, we'll start to see company, uh, countries like Indonesia and Vietnam and, and so on getting more and more capable, which, which is pretty exciting. Do you see any electronics manufacturer manufacturing ever really happening, say in the Western hemisphere, obviously like Mexico is looked at for, I think maybe clothed textiles and things like that. But to my knowledge, it's not really any significant electronics manufacturing. Uh, is, is that pretty much, you've mentioned Asia in general, is that pretty much where Dragon is focused? Yeah, we're right now we're focused in um, Asia. We have an office in Europe and have been aggressively expanding in um, both Eastern and Western Europe, as well as the north of north of England. Um, an area that we have yet to really get into is Mexico, and it's certainly on the list. We just um, we have to get more, you know, um, be able to build up some expertise in other areas before we get in there. Yeah, but we're we're excited to learn that from. My understanding, Mexico tends to be very horizontal, similar to the U.S., where China is very vertically integrated in that you have everything under one roof. But, um, but yeah, every geography has their own sort of unique features. And one of the key things that we find is a criteria for success is the ability to have trusted feet on the ground in the factory, which we can do now in the U.S., Europe, and um, Asia-Pac in China. Um, so the, the next part of the journey will be trying to build some relationships in Mexico so we can get some um, dragons down there and, and be able to embed them in the factories. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think with China, a lot of people, they just think of, you know, that there's a lot of, that they can find a factory easily. But the, the big advantage really with China is that they have this massive supplier ecosystem. So as you know, you can get just about anything in China versus if you're manufacturing in Mexico, just even sourcing all the components is going to be more problematic. Yes. I mean, China, they have a huge labor workforce, um, you know, compared to just about every other country, great um, logistics and infrastructure that you can get the products to the um, container yards really efficiently and move the goods quickly. So they're, um, I still look at China as a very powerful um, manufacturing um, location and, and in many ways, the world's workshop. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure it will be that way for quite the foreseeable future, but it, it would be nice if, you'd, if if manufacturing was would ramp up, say in Mexico, it, it's so much closer, makes it easier to, to work with that, you know, not really any time, diff- time zone difference versus China. You, you, it's pretty much you ask a question and then you get an answer the next day and it's communications really slow, which is one of the big disadvantages of, I find going through China is just the, the time difference. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the more locally you can build, the better, better off it is, I think. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and kind of go maybe a little more uh, technical and discuss design for manufacturing. And I, I'm curious, just in general, obviously, this is a huge topic and you could list hundreds of things to do for design to make it more manufacturable. But I didn't know if there were any top tips that you have for designing a product to make it more manufacturable? Sure. Yeah. So a few things to think about. One is first off, trying to figure out how much design for manufacture or design for assembly is required. And in my opinion, this is just simply a function of the volume that you're building. So, you know, imagine you're building 10 units. That would imply that you probably don't not, you don't need to build a separate set of tools to make your parts, which is a whole effort. Um, in itself. And with only 10, you can file the corners and, and get it to work and really interact with each one. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you're building a million units, then the last thing you ever want to do is to have to touch every one of them. And you want to make sure the design is very, very robust, that it's just going to go together the right way. Um, it's going to be very cost optimized because uh, what I always remember is every penny you save at a million units is $10,000. So there's a lot of leverage on it. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. That makes a, a penny seem pretty significant. <laughs> it it totally does. Whereas, you know, if you look at 10 units, it's, you know, 10 cents. So it's not worth a lot of effort. Um, but yeah, so thinking about how much um, effort to put into DFMA is, is a, in my opinion, a function of volume. And then let's say that you are building closer to the 5,000 to a million units. That would imply that it is going to be important. I would typically start with design for assembly or DFA which is really looking at how many parts do you actually need and how do those parts go together? Because if within reason, if you can reduce your part count, um, the fewer parts you have, generally the lower the assembly time, the less um, number of items you have to order or worse yet, the fewer things you can forget to order um, because presumably if you're missing a part, you can't build the product. So it just simplifies your supply chain. Now, again, you do want to apply common sense and not go crazy trying to integrate, you know, 28 parts into this super complex, unmoldable piece. But, um, but generally, I would start with DFMA, sorry, DFA and looking at, you know, the um, reduced part counts and then how do the, the parts go together. And then once you've done that, then you can move into DFM or design for manufacture, where you really focus on the part level and we'll think about say, injection molding, how do you incorporate um, draft, which is a slight angle to the vertical wall so they can come out of the part as it shrink, out of the tool as it shrinks, to rounds in the corner so that the melt will flow evenly. You want to have pressure drops and, and things like uniform wall thicknesses. Um, but yeah, a very simple three-step process. One, look at the volume, figure out how much work you need to put into it. Two, start with design for assembly. And then three, move into um, design for manufacture. 
Okay, that's that's great. I, I know for my product, I had spent for the design for assembly aspect, I, I spent so much time constantly assembling my product, which was kind of heavy on the mechanical side. It had a lot of springs and things that had to be inserted. In it. And for me, that was the biggest part of sort of the design for manufacturing aspect is, is simplifying the assembly process. And I just remember doing so many prototype versions and just sitting, you know, timing myself, how long each step took and how many, you know, how can I simplify this and constantly trying to optimize that, that process. So that's definitely something that I can relate to. And as design for manufacturing, you know, you mentioned things like draft and such, and I, I, and you've kind of already touched on this. I don't think you need to overwhelm yourself with for your first prototype design that it has to be that you've got to have all the draft angles and the uniform wall thickness and everything just perfect. But you do need to at least understand the process enough to know that your design can be taken there. You don't want to obviously design something that could be designed with a simple pool mold, but you've instead made it where it has all these side actions and and complicated your, your product or the, the mold for the product. so I just, uh, I've seen so many cases where, especially with enclosure designs, you design something that just can't be injection molded. It can be 3D printed, but then when they go to, to try to scale it, they're like, oh, well, it's not just a matter of scaling. I have to pretty much redo the entire design. Yes. Yeah. And what happens is often companies will work with great uh, industrial design firms, create an aesthetic shape they fall in love with, and then realize that it's just not practical to to produce it in volume. And what often gets them is the vertical walls because generally any vertical wall has to have a slight slope or a draft angle to it. And if the wall is quite tall, then even though it's only maybe half a degree, that can add up, you know, to be a significant deviation, um, you know, over a couple inches. And there are ways to get around that using side action, but it makes a much more complex tool and usually get a witness line. Um, on the corner, which might not be what you're looking for. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, okay. Those are, those are good. Um, so sort of the, the last topic I'd like to, to touch on is I know that you're also a, a partner with Bolt, uh, which is a, an investment firm. I, I'm, I suspect a lot of people, listeners will know of Bolt. If, if not, uh, definitely check them out. They have a great blog, but they're an investment firm that specializes in investing in hardware startups, early stage hardware startups. So I kind of wanted to just touch on the, the the topic of finding investors for a hardware startup. And I'm just curious if you have any quick tips or just a few of your top tips for startups that are, do plan on seeking outside investment. Sure. And specifically hardware startups, since that's what Bolt specializes in. Yeah. And and hardware is certainly a lot more capital intense than, than software. Yes. I think the first thing I would do is just step back and, and well, VC is one type of funding. There's a lot of other sources of capital that you can use to scale your business. My favorite by far, and also the hardest is just profitable growth where you tend to self fund based on the, um, the margin you generate operating your business. And this is cool because it lets you retain full ownership of your company. But at the same time, if you um, don't have access to capital, maybe from savings or other things ahead of time, then it can be um, you know more challenging to um, find a way to buy the tooling and inventory. 
Um, but if possible, I'd always go that route. If that one isn't viable, then I'd also consider bank loans, friends and family, and even angel investors are great, particularly if they're strategic and can help you with connections um, just to get rolling. Typically, early on, you want to find the product market fit. And the longer you can delay taking outside money, in my opinion, the better off you are because it gives you a lot more flexibility. But at some point, you may get um, to the stage where like, all right, now we're, we've gone through friends and family, we've bootstrapped, we've got some good angels on board, and, and we're really ready to raise a, raise a round uh, from a venture investor. And at that point, um, there's a lot of different VCs out there. At Bolt, we're an early stage investor. So generally, we'll write a, a half million dollar check and be the first institutional money in. There's many um, great late stage investors that want to um, be able to see that you're scaling, you found product market fit, and that you know for every dollar um, invested in the business, it generates a dollar and a half, um, you know, in um, in profit, something like that. So that's a whole different type of investor. So as you're looking, you want to find one that's the right stage and also the right vertical. At Bolt, we do hardware. So if you're doing a hardware product, that could be a good fit. Typically, uh, the general guidelines are that you should have a path to get to 100 million revenue in five years, ideally with a large part of that consisting of some sort of recurring revenue, which in the, in the hardware context would mean some sort of a SaaS or cloud-based model where the hardware is in the loop, but not the main focus. Mm-hmm. And this definitely is not a fit for all companies. Some companies, um, it's a great business model to sell $10 million a year for a a standalone hardware product. Um, But from a VC perspective, they like reoccurring revenue because it has the highest multiple and it's a lot more predictable. Um, Yes, absolutely. Criteria. Um, Certainly early stage, the VCs are going to look a lot at the founders um, to see if they've had uh, successful exits before, what their education is, what their experience is, where they've worked, who they're able to pull together for a team. Um, that, and that's often more important than uh, almost anything else because early on, there's the expectation that there's going to be a lot of pivoting um, you know, while they find the, the product market fit. Yes. But you've got to be going after a huge market that's going to make a meaningful impact. I always think about VCs that they'd prefer to get, well, if it's up, um, uh, getting in the baseball analogy, you know, getting a hit to first or second is a lot less interesting than swinging for a grand slam and either get the grand slam or you strike out. Um, they'd prefer to strike out than get like, you know, just make it to first. Like they're going for the really, really big win. Yes. And if you break down the math of a VC fund, which we probably won't have time to do here, but you'll see the way this, they're structured. The only way the VCs or general partners win is if they have these massive sort of Fitbit-style exits, um, which means that when they're investing in a company, that company has to have the potential to um, address a you know, really sizable market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, obviously, VCs are, are much later stage. Not It's not going to be an early stage uh, that's going to be more the the realm of angel investors as such, which uh, angel investors don't, they don't have quite the, the, the requirements of a VC as far as that you have to hit a hundred million in, in revenue in five years is, would you agree with that or? 
I wouldn't. With an angel investor, especially if you can get a strategic one that knows your business and can be helpful, the math is totally different because generally they get 100% of the upside, but also if the money's gone, they lose 100% of their money. Whereas with a VC fund, they're typically structured around this concept of carry, where they um, the group of general partners in the fund may only get 20% of uh, any upside. So there needs to be a lot more leverage for them to make any money. Um, whereas an angel, you know, if you can invest in a company, um, and even if they don't get to $100 million, there's still an opportunity to have quite a nice outcome. Yeah, and in regards to angel investors, you mentioned a strategic investor, which I feel like is uh, can't be overemphasized how important that is. It's so many entrepreneurs they they focus on just the money, but money doesn't solve the problems. It's more. I mean, obviously you need the money, but you also need experience. And having an angel investor that has that experience, I think, can be more valuable than the money itself. Yes. Yeah. And often the angels are um, also entrepreneurs that potentially have had a successful exit and have connections with the VCs. And in the VC world, who you're introduced um, to the VC by is really important. So it's a great stepping stone if, um, if you do go down the VC path later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When it comes to investors, you, you definitely cannot just reach out to them cold. It's, it's all about having a personal introduction to an investor because otherwise you're just randomly asking some stranger for money and that's just not a good way to start a relationship. Yes. Yeah. It's a much harder road to, um, yeah, to, to get to a successful outcome. How, how do you feel investors, whether that be angel investors or VCs, how, how do they look at crowdfunding? If you've had a successful crowdfunding round before you're bringing on these other investors is is that a positive because it's shown market proof or is it a negative because you have all these other investors in the company yeah i think eight years ago or let's just say a while ago crowdfunding was really uh, an important proof point so if you had a um, pebble style kickstarter then pretty much every vc would want to talk to you but today i don't really see that that holds anymore I think um, it's nice if you have a good one, but maybe there's more downside that if you don't have a successful campaign, then it, it may create some additional hurdles to get over. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think it carries the same amount of, of weight as it used to. Do they look at it as a negative ever? I think they could if it was unsuccessful. Um, but I think also the best investors will look at the sort of the team, the market, the competitors, try to understand why one product or one team is 10 times better than everybody else, and then decide to invest in them. So in some VCs are just um, like lemmings, they're follow me, but the, the best ones actually are a little bit contrarian and see things that other people don't. Um, and the, I, I think the crowdfunding may be unrelated to that. Okay, gotcha. Okay, well, Scott, this has been really great. I think we're we're kind of running uh, just over an hour, so I'll go ahead and wrap this up. We've covered a lot of great topics, and you shared a, a lot of uh, really great wisdom. Can you maybe just uh, tell listeners where they can learn more about Scott Miller? Obviously, they can learn more about Dragon Innovation on dragoninnovation.com. 
But uh, if you want to give any Twitter handles or if you have a personal website that they can find you on, if you want to share that, that would be good. Oh, absolutely. And um, thanks again, John, for the opportunity to be on the, the podcast. For uh, Twitter, we're um, at Dragon Innovate. Um, and feel free to, to reach out to us anytime. And then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, which is just Scott, my middle initial N, and then Miller. So also feel free to reach out. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put those uh, links in the show notes for this episode so listeners can easily find you. Cool. Well, this okay. has been a lot of fun. Well, Scott, this was really good. I've uh, been excited to talk with you for quite a while. I know we, we talked a couple years ago, but obviously we've never done a, a formal interview. So I've been excited to pick your brains for everyone to listen to. So thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, likewise. Yeah, this has been a blast. Okay, you have a good day. You too. Thanks, John. Okay, see ya. That's it for today. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Predictable Designs podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then definitely check out the hardwareacademy.com where you can get support from myself and other experts to help you successfully get your product developed and on the market. We have experts in electronics design, enclosure design, prototyping, certifications, manufacturing, marketing, startups, and sales. You even get private one-on-one consulting directly with me. The Hardware Academy also includes a highly active and incredibly helpful community of other hardware entrepreneurs with a wide range of experience and skills. No longer do you have to go at it all alone. Now you have a community of experts on your team. You'll also get regular in-depth training courses, workshops, product teardowns, and resources to help you succeed with your product. Finally, you get access to my list of recommended developers, suppliers, and manufacturers. Check out the Hardware Academy today at thehardwareacademy.com.